The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, 
Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of God for the people of God. Well, friends, we've reached the end. This is the last sermon in our series through the Gospel of John. Uh, we began this series August 8th of last year, 35 sermons. And this morning we come to the concluding chapter of the book and to John's last words to us in this particular gospel. So what a joy it's been to engage this book of the Bible together. I hope you've had fun along the journey. And the series we're going to start next week, we're going to do a little short series, just five weeks, called The Gospel of John, B-Sides. Not besides, B-Sides. All right, so in musical parlance, you know, the B-Sides are like the cuts that didn't make it on the studio album but they're like a, you know, like a, a version they recorded that didn't really get released with the studio album, but it's like a, an extra release or a re-release of the album. We're going to take a look. We're actually going to sort of step back into the gospel for five weeks and just look at five key themes in the gospel of John as a way of sort of bringing full conclusion to this series. But this morning, we're going to look at the last chapter of the book and at the way John concludes the story in his gospel. Um, when I was 14 years old, somewhere between 8th grade and ninth grade, um, I went through a rite of passage in my journey from childhood to adulthood, and that was I went to spend a month working on Uncle Greg's farm. My Uncle Greg is a farmer in Central City, Nebraska, has been my whole life. Uh, lived there as long as I've known who he was. He always lived in the same house, farming the same ground, him and my Aunt Karen, and um, it was sort of a rite of passage in our family, especially for the boys, that when you reach a certain age, you went to Uncle Greg's farm and you, you learned how to work. You lived there for a month and sort of just put in time working as a farmhand. My uncles had done this before me. I was sort of the oldest of the next generation. And so my time had come when I was 14 to go out there and spend a month working on the farm. And Uncle Greg had been sort of dropping an invitation to this for a couple years at family gatherings, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. He'd been hinting, hey, I think it's about time for you to come out and work on the farm. And the invitation sounded something like this. Well, I think it's about time you city kids came out here and learned how to work. And I don't know if that was just, if Uncle Greg was just playing like the Midwestern farmer persona, or if that was his true conviction, but either way, he played the part beautifully. I mean, you got the sense that in Uncle Greg's world, there were two kinds of people. There were city people, and then there were real people, right? <laughs> like, if you were a city kid, that probably meant you were soft, you were lazy, you were weak, you probably didn't even own a pair of boots, you might have never gotten dirty in your life, 
right? And the way to solve all that was just get you out to the farm and we will teach you what it looks like to actually work hard. Now, again, I don't know how much of this was what he really thought and how much of this was just him playing a role, but that was how it was invited, how I was invited to come out to the farm. And so as you can imagine, at age 14, there was a mixture of anticipation and also a little bit of fear. Um, because honestly, what 14-year-old wants to go, yeah, put me to work really hard for a month. Did you want to do that when you were 14? When I was 14, I wanted to play video games, hang out with my friends, spend a lot of time at the pool in the summer. I was not like, let me get up early, work really hard until I'm exhausted, and then go to bed and do it again tomorrow. No 14-year-old thinks that way, which is why there's truth in what Uncle Greg was saying. The only way you learn that is if someone sort of teaches you that. So my mom and dad dropped me off at the farm. I think it was on a Sunday. We drove out there after church. They dropped me off, drove back to Omaha. The very first thing we did is Uncle Greg said, look, if you're going to be here and be meaningfully helpful, you got to know how to drive. Now, I had driven go-karts and stuff, so the idea of driving was not new to me. What I had not done was to drive a Toyota stick shift pickup truck, and he felt like that's what I needed to learn in that exact moment. So we went out on the gravel roads around the house, and he put me in the driver's seat of this little standard shift Toyota pickup truck and made me learn how to drive a stick. Now, the good news was I wasn't merging onto the interstate right? There were no like hills like there are in Benson, where if you let off the clutch, you're going to go backwards instead of forward. It was a pretty safe place to learn how to drive a pickup truck like that. And so we got to the place where he felt like I was reasonably competent and was like, all right, we're good to go. We went home, got up the next morning, you know, and we were going to begin our time of work. So the very first thing every day, especially at that season of farming, this may still be true today. I don't know how technology has changed all of this, but in that season of time, the very first thing you had to do every morning, especially in the summer, was go check irrigation. Because of course, all the fields are watered through irrigation. And so we had to figure out how are various fields faring and turn some pumps on and other ones off and all that. So the first task every morning was drive through all the fields, check all the irrigation. So we went to one of his fields, He's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get out of the truck. I'm going to walk this field all the way to the other side, check on how it's doing. I want you to drive around the field. So drive around this quarter. You're going to go down here, turn right, then turn right again. Meet me at the other side of the field, and we'll go to the next field. All right, got that. He gets out of the truck, drive down the road, turn right, drive down the next road. Feeling pretty good. Clutch is working fine. Suddenly, I realize my next right turn is just right there. And in that moment, I panicked and turned right really hard and plowed that truck right into a fence post. And I was not hurt. The truck was damaged pretty significantly, and of course it stalled. And I remember just getting out of the truck, sitting down on the gravel road, and I felt two things very deeply in that moment. The first was embarrassment. Right? Like I had just really messed up, done something really dumb, was going to have to answer for it, I felt the embarrassment of a moment like that. The second thing I felt was, as best I can describe it, was resignation. Like, whatever value I was going to add to the farming operation, which was up for debate in the first place as a city kid, I certainly was not going to add enough value to make up for the cost of what it was going to take to fix what I had just done, right? Like, it was going to be a net loss already to have me there for a month. And so I figured... I might as well just quit now. Like, I, I don't know what good it does me to continue doing this. Embarrassment and resignation. Well, I wonder how many of us can relate to feeling something similar 
in our relationship with God. Like, isn't it true that all of us start out as young Christians and we have a sense of zeal and love and hunger for God and a desire to meaningfully be involved in God's work in the world, but at some point in your journey, you fail miserably or you become more deeply aware of how sinful and weak you are. Your foolishness manifests itself in some way then there comes a point where you just functionally start thinking, I wonder if I'm any use at all to God. Like, does it even make sense for me to try to continue to follow him? What's the point? What do you do when you've kind of royally messed up? I imagine that's a little bit of what the disciples are feeling as we come to John 21. Think about it. Jesus has risen from the dead. The good news is Jesus is alive. He has fulfilled all the prophecy. They've seen him. They've touched him. They know and are celebrating the fact that he rose from the dead. And that's really good news. They are still the same people who denied him, who ran away, who left him in his moment of need. The people who, despite their best assertions of how they would be devoted to him, they have failed to follow through on that. That's still who they are the morning after the resurrection. And I imagine in them there's some sense of, man, it's really good news that Jesus is alive, but realistically, we're not gonna be much help to him in the work he's set out to do. What do you do when you start feeling that reality? What Peter and the disciples do is they go fishing. Right? And that's where the story picks up in John chapter 21. Verse 1 says this, after Jesus, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Now, some commentators read this and they think like what the disciples are doing is like quitting on Jesus and going back to their old life. I don't think that's what's happening. Most commentators actually don't think that's what's happening. It's probably more something like this. Well, we got to do something with our lives. What should we do? It's a sense of, hey, if we're going to give our lives to something, clearly we're not qualified to give them to whatever it was Jesus was going to have us do in the first place. Might as well go fishing. It's a sense of resignation to, I got to give myself to something. And as you know, many of these men, when Jesus originally called them, were fishermen. This was their trade. This was their vocation. This is what they knew. And so in a sense, they're going to go give their lives to the thing they know best how to do. So as you know, from reading the story or from hearing it read, uh, they go fishing. They go out all night. They catch no fish. Dawn starts to break. There's some guy on the shore. He says, hey, have you caught anything? They say, no. He says, try throwing your net on the right side of the boat. They do that. This huge catch of fish suddenly appears in the net, and they realize it's the Lord. And I like how the text tells us, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. This is the only guy that gets dressed to go swimming. Like most of us are getting rid of clothes. He's like, let me, you know, let me put on my outer garment real quick before I jump in the ocean and start swimming to Jesus. The other disciples come behind him. They're dragging this net full of fish. And, and here's where the story begins to get really powerful. 
Specialists in counseling and in neurobiology will tell you that uh, modern research has revealed something pretty fascinating about how your memory works. All the memorable events in your life, good and bad, the things that actually stick in your memory, are tied to emotion. In other words, the reason you remember certain things is because you felt something in that moment. The reason that experience of wrecking my uncle's pickup truck is etched in my memory is because of the feelings of anguish and guilt and embarrassment that were present in that moment. That's what wedded itself to my memory and makes that a memorable moment. All those emotions inscribe themselves on your soul and on your consciousness. So if you think back to either a pleasant or a painful memory in your past, chances are you can feel the feeling associated with that even now. And there are likely sounds or sensations or even smells that are attached to that memory. There are sensory impressions connected to those emotions and to that event. Smell is especially an odd phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, isn't it true in your life that certain smells can take you immediately back to some moment or memory in your life? This is what the scented candle people have figured out. They know you want to smell a pine tree at Christmas time. You want to smell flowers in the spring, and you want to smell cinnamon rolls at Thanksgiving, and that's what they market to you, and you pay money for that. You know why? Because they know, oh, smell is associated with these experiences or memories or sort of certain feeling tones in your experience, and they've just figured out how to make money off that. So let me ask you a question that you might never have thought about until this moment. What did Peter smell at the moment that he denied Jesus? The text actually tells us. Go back to that story, John chapter 18. It's a few chapters ago. John 18, verse 17. We're in the high priest's courtyard. Here's what it says. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself for the third time. John tells you. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the, didn't you just cut off my cousin's ear a few hours ago? What are we talking about here? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, for the rest of Peter's life, this moment is going to be etched in his memory, right? I mean, this is the moment of his greatest spiritual failure. This is the moment when he denied the Savior who died for him. And two sensations are always going to be connected to this moment. One is the sound of a rooster crowing. And the second is the smell of a charcoal fire. So go back to John 21. Notice what Jesus is doing. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. I want you to catch this. Jesus does not just want to forgive Peter. 
He wants to change his story. He wants to rewrite the story by which Peter will define himself. He's out to heal the places of deepest shame and guilt in Peter's story and the sensations that are connected to those moments. So Jesus is going to change what a charcoal fire will mean for Peter. He knows what that smell will remind Peter of. And he's going to transform what it means in Peter's story. Listen, I want you to catch this. Jesus is not merely out to save your soul. Jesus is out to change your story. How many of you, the lie you really believe deep down is that because of your story, because of things you've done or things that have been done to you or ways that you've failed or things that attach themselves to sort of your family story because of something in your past, God could probably never use you. Probably you're going to be on the B team for the rest of your life. You're kind of just going to hang around, but you're never really going to be useful in a meaningful way to God. How many of you, that lie bounces around somewhere in your heart? Jesus is showing you he's out to change that lie and replace it with truth. Because he doesn't just want to forgive Peter. He wants to use Peter. He wants to redeem and restore him. Look at verse 10. I love this. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Jesus is making a fire. He's got some fish and bread on there. He says, hey, guys, bring some of those fish you just caught. Let's cook them up. Which is funny to me because the only reason they've caught the fish is because he had told them, Hey guys, put your net on the right. So he already provided the very fish that he's telling them to bring and to help contribute. Isn't that how God works? Like he's inviting you to contribute something, but the thing he's inviting you to contribute is something he already gave you in the first place. This is grace, isn't it? Hey, you get to be part of it, but the thing you're going to give is something God already gave you in the first place. Such a great picture of the kingdom of God. And I think it's funny, in this text, it says, um, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, which suggests they all wanted to ask him, who are you? Now, these are his disciples. It's not like they don't recognize him, but what it suggests is that Jesus' resurrection body is similar, but also very different. Like it's the kind of thing that clues you into whatever Jesus looked like in this moment, he was recognizable yet also transformed. And that's why they kind of wanted to ask, hey, who are you? But they knew. They knew it was Jesus. Well, now we shift to the second scene in the story. So look at this, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, so they sit down, they eat some breakfast. When they'd finished, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, you'll notice this happens a second time and a third time, and it doesn't take a genius to see the pattern that Jesus is working out here, right? Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus is going to restore Peter three times. He's going to match that same pattern. So three times he asks the same question, and three times he gives the same commission or charge. The question is, do you love me? Listen, just let 
the Lord Jesus ask that question to your soul this morning? If Jesus were to ask you, hey, do you love me? What's the honest answer? That's what matters to Jesus. What matters is not, do you believe in me? Do you think some things are true about me? Are you convinced that there might be some reality in the story that these writers are telling about me? What he asks is, do you love me? And Peter answers quite humbly by saying, Lord, you know. Like Peter knows. He's not telling Jesus something Jesus doesn't already know. <laughs> what he says is, you know that I love you. And Jesus does know it. And you know it too. You know it from reading the story of Peter, right? Like you're not cynical about Peter's love for Christ. It's not like you're thinking, well, I mean, maybe Peter's just in it for himself. The whole story, through the whole gospel, you know, man, Peter's kind of headstrong. He's a little naive, but there's no doubt. He loves the Lord Jesus. Like he's in, he's a follower. His love is strong. Listen to me, love and weakness can coexist in the same person. Isn't that good news? Love is not a zero-sum game where either you love God and you always do the right thing or you don't love him at all. Love and weakness can coexist in the same person. You can love Jesus and still fail miserably. Peter is evidence of that. And Jesus is asking him this question to make him reckon with, hey, Peter, yes, you denied me. We all know what happened when that rooster crowed. But listen, do you love me? Peter knows that the answer is yes, and Jesus knows that the answer is yes, and Jesus is making Peter reckon with that reality. Yes, I love you. And then notice the commission he gives, the same thing three times. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, he doesn't just want to forgive Peter. He wants to give Peter meaningful work to do. It's not, hey, Peter, you know what? You're kind of on the sidelines now. You had a good run. We tried this. You can still be on the team, but you don't get to play. He's giving Peter a meaningful assignment. He's saying, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to lead my church. I want you to be involved in this mission alongside me. Don't forget that in John 10, we had a whole discourse about how Jesus is the good shepherd. So he's using that same image, that idea of shepherd and sheep, and he's saying, Peter, hey, not only do I forgive you, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to do what I've done to lead and serve my people. All right, so I was sitting in the middle of the gravel road for what seemed like a really long time next to a truck that was meaningfully wrecked. And finally, my Uncle Greg came walking through the corn stalks out of the field. And the first thing he said is, what happened? It was relatively obvious what had happened. But I, in some way, tried to answer the question. The second thing he asked me is, why didn't you just keep going and then back up? I was like, that would have been a really smart thing to do. That is a really reasonable question. And if I would have been thinking about it, I probably should have done that, right? But none of us in these moments are thinking about the right thing to do. We just react. So he walks over. He looks at me sitting in the road, looks at the truck, stands there for a minute. And then he said, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. This is just the cost of doing business. Let's go. So we got in the truck. He drove. 
I sat in the passenger seat. We went about whatever that day held. That night at dinner, I asked if we could call my parents and if I could just go back to Omaha. Because I was still realizing like, hey, whatever value I add for the next month, I've, it's not paying for this. So let's just call it good. Why don't we just chalk this up to bad learning experience and let's move on. He told me rather gruffly that that wasn't going to be an option. He said something like, that might be what city kids do. <laughs> but on the farm, we learn from our mistakes and we get up and do it again tomorrow, right? So it fit into his narrative fairly well. I'm pretty sure I went to bed early that night. I didn't really want to be around anyone. I still had this pit in my stomach, you know, of just how you feel in that moment. Look, being an adult now and having paid to repair multiple vehicles from multiple mishaps, both my fault and the fault of other people who will remain nameless in this room, I realized that a wrecked vehicle is not the end of the world, right? I mean, these things can be fixed. No big deal. It happens in life. But listen, as a 14-year-old, this was the most expensive and humiliating mistake I had made to this point in my life. So the next morning, I tried to, up, tried to muster up my best, it's a new day, you know, <laughs> right? Everything is awesome. Tried to muster up my self-talk, put on my work clothes, headed out the front door, and there in the gravel driveway, Uncle Greg hands me the keys to the pickup truck. And he said, listen, I've got to drive the tractor, and I need you to follow me in the truck. And I just sort of stood there, kind of paralyzed. And I remember saying, I can't. I can't. And he looked at me and he said, look, we can't undo yesterday. What's done is done. You're going to have to get into a car and drive it again sooner or later. Might as well be today. We got some things to do. It does me no good to have a farmhand who's scared to drive. So I got behind the wheel of that pickup truck and drove very slowly, very carefully behind the tractor. And we went on with the work in front of us that day. And my uncle taught me a very important lesson that day, and it was this. When we fail, we don't just need to be forgiven. We do need that. But we also need to be restored to usefulness, don't we? It's not just that we need to be forgiven for the mistakes we've made. We also need to be convinced that we're still useful in some way, that there's still meaningful things we're supposed to do in life. That's what Jesus is doing for Peter. Peter doesn't just need to be forgiven. He also needs to be restored to usefulness. So Jesus gives him work to do. He says, Peter, I want you to go tend my flock. I'm going to give you something to give your life to. Likewise, listen to me, Jesus doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to use you. He's not just out to save your soul. He's out to change your story and give you something meaningful to do in the world for his name and for his glory. Some of you are believing that lie that you're just not useful to the Lord, that you've failed too miserably or, or there's just too much complexity in your story for you to be used by God. And you're here, you haven't given up on the faith but you have given up on the idea that you can meaningfully be involved in the work of God in a significant way. So you're kind of just going to be a part of things. But in the back of your mind, you're pretty convinced there's not anything significant for you to do. 
Listen, Jesus wants you to realize he has given you meaningful work to do. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God. Everybody is called into the work of making disciples. If you belong to Jesus, you also belong to the mission of Jesus. If you have been saved by Jesus, you have also been sent by Jesus. You're called into this work, this mission that he gives to these disciples. This is for you, just as it was for them. All right, so let's look at the final scene in the story, verse 20. So Jesus had this conversation with Peter. You get the sense that they kind of walk away from breakfast. Maybe Jesus has his arm around Peter and he's telling him, hey, feed my sheep. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, which I think is kind of funny. I don't know what this guy's doing. He's just like, hey, check out what this conversation is that Jesus is having with Peter. I don't know the context. John doesn't really say it. But verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Isn't that question in all of us somewhere? Like, don't you realize that like part of the question you have is like, well, what about this person over here? What about them? What do they got to do? Or why do they got to do that and I got to do this? Right? There's a sense in which one of the hindrances to our discipleship is always the ways we compare ourselves to other people. Like, well, my, my job seems harder than that person or how come they're not doing what you've called me? Like, we're always concerned with what everybody else is doing. And I like how Jesus responds. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Do you hear what he's saying to Peter? He's saying, hey, do you know what you're supposed to be responsible for? You. Stop worrying about him. Stop worrying about what my plan is for him, what his future is, what my calling is for him. Listen, you follow me. What a great word for us, right? Hey, listen, the first thing we need to be concerned about with is our own discipleship. Stop worrying about everybody else and what they're doing or not doing. You follow me. This is a personal word from Jesus to every one of you. You follow me. We'll get to that person later. I got a plan for them. They're important in my kingdom. I'm going to give them their own calling. But listen, you, Peter, follow me. You worry about you. <laughs> John says, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Like rumors got started even back then. Isn't that encouraging? This is just like a normal church where people at gospel are like, hey, did you hear Jesus told John he's not going to die? That's not what he said. Like, but that's the rumor that got spread. And so it's funny that John's like, um, actually, that's not what Jesus said. What he said is, quote, if it is my will that he remain until I come. He's like reproducing the exact quote. He's like, there's some fake news here, misinformation. Let's get the quote exactly right from Jesus so you guys can all see. He didn't say he wasn't going to die. What he said is, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So notice, John is shifting the focus now. The focus has been on Peter and on Jesus' conversation with Peter. But now we see there is another human being involved here, John, who's writing. And he says, and he's got his own story to live out that Jesus has given him. He goes on to say, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who's written these things. So listen, here's what we see. Not only you should just worry about you, but also, listen, we get the joy of doing this together. Like this story is about Peter 
and John, and Thomas, and Mary Magdalene, and the sons of Zebedee, and Thomas, who's called the twin, because apparently he was a twin, right? There's all these people in the story. They have their own journey. They have their own calling. They're all called into this work. Listen, the encouraging thing John leaves us with is none of us is called to do this alone. You're not called alone to make disciples, to give yourself to the kingdom of God, to invest in the mission of God. We get to do this together. We're called into this together, and each of us has our own role to play. Each of us has our own calling. Each of us has our own responsibilities and skills. Listen, you know, part of what John's doing here is just giving us a vision of a really healthy church. I imagine part of why John wrote this is because for the early churches, the first churches who would have gotten this letter, he wants them to understand, hey, each person has their own responsibility, their own role, their own calling. Christ is going to use every person, and he's going to use every person differently, right? The recipe for a healthy church is this. You worry about you, and you celebrate the gifts of the people around you. Like, you worry about your own discipleship, but also, man, enjoy the fact that we get to do this together. And isn't that what we see in the early church? As you read the rest of the story of the Bible, you realize, man, the early church had a lot of joy. There was a sense of, like, each person's responsible for their own discipleship to the Lord Jesus, and they seem to enjoy doing this together. And Jesus wants the same thing for us. He wants each of us to take responsibility for our own discipleship and for our own relationship and for our own story and for our own weaknesses and for our own need to walk and follow Jesus. And he wants us to enjoy the fact that we get to do this together. So as we close this morning, I want you to notice something interesting. Um, Notice, you probably did notice this even last week, that the Gospel of John could have ended after chapter 20, right? Do you remember the end of chapter 20? It has this amazing summary statement that just sounds like, well, the book should end there, right? Chapter 20 ends this way. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. End of story, right? Man, what a great conclusion for the book, except the book doesn't end there. So the question is, why chapter 21? If chapter 20 had such a great conclusion, why is chapter 21 even in the gospel? Here's the simple answer. Because the resurrection is not the end of the story. Remember, like we said last week, the resurrection is a new beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a new chapter of the story. The work that Jesus began in his death and resurrection is continuing right now. And his goal is that every one of his disciples would be actively involved in that ongoing story, actively caught up in that mission. And so John wants us to hear Jesus restoring Peter because he knows there's Peters in every church, right? Every one of us can relate to that sense of like, man, I've already wrecked this pretty significantly. Probably I'm not very useful. Probably it doesn't make any sense for me to stay after this because after all, what could I possibly contribute So John wants us to hear Jesus saying to Peter, hey, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, care about my church, love my people. And he wants us to realize and hear Jesus' words to each of us when Jesus says to Peter, hey, you follow me. You follow me. Stop worrying about the people around you. Stop worrying about everybody else's story. You follow me.
And listen, can't you see the primary place this gets lived out? The primary place we have to experience this and get caught up in this mission is in the context of the local church. It's not the only place we live out the mission of God, but it's the primary place. As that video did such a great job of highlighting, right? What did Peter and John do? Turn the chapter, turn the page to the book of Acts. They planted churches, right? They preached the gospel. They saw God gather together these little communities of disciples in the cities throughout the Roman Empire. And from there, they gathered a little church and then moved on to the next town and did the same thing. That's how the apostles lived out their calling. And that's how we get to live out that calling today. When Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, the metaphor matters. He doesn't say, hang out with that one sheep over there. Sheep are part of the flock, right? This is the primary metaphor the New Testament uses, in fact, to describe the local church. Peter, later on in the epistle he writes in the New Testament, will say to the elders, hey, shepherd the flock of God. This flock metaphor is a metaphor for the church. And so the primary place where to be invested in the mission of God is in the local church. Now, that's not the only place, right? Lots of other good things you can give yourself to in the world, but they're secondary to and designed to flow out of the life that we have as part of a specific flock of God's sheep somewhere in the world, whether that's in Omaha, Nebraska, or in Baltimore, or to the ends of the earth, wherever it might be. Our primary calling is, hey, we're to be making disciples, caught up in the mission of God through a local church. So listen, I want you to hear this word as we close this gospel. As we come to the end of John's story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, notice that where John wants to end the story is with the words of Jesus, you follow me. So I want to ask you to personally respond to this this morning. I want you to realize that where John is leaving you, as he did last week, when he ends chapter 20 with, these are written so that you may believe. He has a very personal focus in mind. This is not an abstract, general call to anyone. John wants you to hear, hey, the Lord Jesus wants you to follow him. The Lord Jesus wants you to be invested in feeding his sheep and building up his people and advancing his mission. So I want you to hear that call in your own soul and to respond to it this morning. Will you follow Jesus? Will you be invested in and involved in the work of feeding his sheep, tending his flock? Let's pray together. And I want to just give you a minute in your own soul to speak with God about that, to offer yourself to him for his purposes, to hear him saying to you, follow me. So would you respond in your own soul and tell him, yes, I will. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you want to use even us in your kingdom work.
we affirm this morning the very obvious truth that we are not the Lord Jesus Christ. He is perfect and sinless and sovereign, and we know all too well that we are flawed and guilty and foolish and limited and finite. But would you remind us this morning of your invitation, of your call, not just to forgiveness, but to being sent by you and used by you. So Father, overcome the fear, the uncertainty, the self-doubt that keeps us pulled back. We invite you into the places in our souls where we need to hear you, not just forgiving us, but calling us into usefulness. Like you did for Peter, would you heal the broken places in our story? Would you speak your grace to the places in our lives where we most need it? And would you receive our humble commitment before you this morning? Would you help us be people who say, yes, we will be your followers and we will tend your flock. We will be committed to the work you've asked us to do. Strengthen the grace of the gospel in our souls so that we see not only are we forgiven by your grace, but we are sent and commissioned by your grace. So we receive this invitation this morning and ask you to send us forth as your faithful people for our good and for your glory. Amen.